Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 30th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is cyber threats to law firms and businesses. How do we defend ourselves? Sharon and I are happy to welcome as our guest, Stuart Baker, a lawyer and cybersecurity expert. Stuart is a partner in the law firm of Steptoe & Johnson in Washington, D.C., From 2005 to 2009, he was the first Assistant Secretary for Policy at the Department of Homeland Security. His law practice covers matters of homeland security, international trade, cybersecurity, data protection, and travel and foreign investment regulation. As an intelligence lawyer, Mr. Baker has been General Counsel of the National Security Agency and of the commission that investigated WMD intelligence failures prior to the Iraq War. He is the author of Skating on Stilts, a book on terrorism cybersecurity, and other technology issues, and he blogs about such topics at www.skatingonstilts.com. Welcome, Stuart. It's great to be here. Well, thank you for joining us. We had such a good time when we saw you live. You were wonderful at the ABA presentation that we were fortunate enough to attend. So let's start with an introductory question. How would you describe the state of cybersecurity today, and what did you find interesting in the recently issued 2013 Verizon Data Breach Report? Well, there were four things that I thought were very interesting out of that report, and they pretty much tell us where cybersecurity is today. Uh, um, You know, people still think that cybersecurity is in large part an insider problem. Uh, Verizon says, no, 92% of the breaches we found were outsiders. 20% 20% of them, they said, were state-sponsored. A fifth of the compromises were nation-states, and that probably means mostly China. Um, and then was how people found out about it. Uh, 70% of the people whose systems were breached figured it out, not because they found it themselves, but because somebody called them up from outside, probably the FBI, maybe a security firm, and said, did you know you're bleeding data, which, of course, they did not know. And then the last of the four facts I thought were significant is that uh, two-thirds of the compromises took months to discover. And, of course, were only discovered because somebody called them up and, and told them about it. That tells me that our security is just in awful shape. Uh, not only can't we keep people out of our networks, we can't even tell when our network security has failed. And we don't seem to be able to, to, to figure it out even months after the compromise when people are in there stealing our data. This is quite scary uh, when you don't even know how badly you've been compromised. Uh, uh, things are very bad indeed. Stuart, I know we have our own personal experiences with, with our clients in dealing with security. But from your perspective, how serious are overall our, our network security problems? Well, I, the the, the the trouble, uh, the troubling thing is that I don't know anybody who actually can say with any confidence that they know how to uh, keep out, especially the state-sponsored attackers, uh, people whose business it is to uh, uh, secure networks and who have some of their most important business secrets online 
have been compromised and have lost the secrets that are at the heart of their business. And some companies are just out of business and others have taken big revenue hits. Uh, And there was an article in Bloomberg today uh, uh, about the uh, compromises of a company called Kinetic that uh, was just devastating, both uh, in terms of the uh, insecurity and uh, in terms of what it probably means for Kinetic's business. Well, as you well know, Cybersecurity legislation failed last year in Congress, and then the president issued an executive order. What does that do, and how effective do you think it will be? Well, the executive order, um, I have said, did about 80% of what the legislation would have done. Uh, And essentially, it says we're going to identify the critical infrastructure that civilian uh, life depends on. Uh, We're going to notify those people that we're counting on them to have good cybersecurity. We're going to write standards, voluntary standards with industry that apply across the board that will give people a way to improve their security. And then we're going to go looking for regulatory and other incentives to get people to actually implement those things. So most of that is a good thing, um, but it will not change the the strategic situation we're in. because you know any voluntary uh, set of standards that is supposed to apply to every industry in America is not going to be very specific or very flexible, uh, uh, or perhaps will be so flexible as not to mean anything. Uh, so the likelihood that this will be a revolution in our cybersecurity is remote. Uh, it's all a good thing. I support it, but I think it will uh, uh, only make us a little safer. Hmm. Well, with with the executive order in place, um, what remains for for Congress to do, if if anything? And and maybe we should just limit our our comments to the executive order and not anything else Congress should be doing. Yeah, well, (laughs) first, uh, there's a few things that that the president just could not do that are probably on the agenda. Um, And the most uh, important of those is uh, goes under the heading of information sharing or CISPA, um, and this is legislation that essentially authorizes um, private industry to share information with the government. This is uh, there's a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt about this uh, being spread by privacy groups, but uh, uh, essentially this is. Uh, making sure that uh, as we look for the signatures of compromise, the malware that's being sent to us, the spear phishing email uh, uh, that are being sent out from particular accounts, um, and the uh, IP addresses of the exfiltration uh, routes uh, or the infection routes, uh, all of those are things that once one company finds them, every company needs to know about them and they need to know about them at the speed of light uh, uh, so that they can immediately stop accepting those emails, stop sending data to those addresses. Um, that's really the, the goal of information sharing. The problem, the reason you need legislation for that is that probably 25 years ago, privacy groups said, well, gee, we don't, since we're setting privacy rules for the electronic uh, sphere, we should say that the government should never get information from electronic service providers unless they send a subpoena for it. Well, that must have sounded like a good idea then, but Today, if you, you can't possibly imagine 
sending out subpoenas saying, please tell us any more, uh, if you found any more malware. Oh, and now tell me again whether you found more malware. And tell me again. You'd have to send it every 20 seconds to stay up <laughs> to date. Um, and you'd have to have an investigation. None of that works. Uh, this was bad advice from the privacy groups 25 years ago. And we need to modify it so that they aren't going to be held liable for doing something that, that we all want them to do. Um, that's really at the heart of CISPA. That's at the heart of what the president asked for when he asked for something like CISPA. And it's at the heart of what the, uh, the, uh, the Senate bill is trying to do. The question really before we get to do this is how big a toll are the privacy groups going to extract? How many different forms of privacy assurance are they going to demand be attached to this bill uh, to uh, counteract what they claim is a loss of privacy protection because of the repeal of the provisions from 25 years ago? So that's that's what that debate is about. That will that'll be a hard debate, and I think it's going to be very difficult to overcome the resistance of the privacy groups. They've done a good job of uh, creating fear and uncertainty and doubt here. A uh, couple of other things that, that the, we might see in this legislation, we might see an effort to give clear regulatory authority to uh, agencies like the FTC or the FCC or the uh, SEC to say to the people they regulate, and your cybersecurity has to be good to adopt the standards that NIST has come up with. Uh, right now, some of them probably have authority to say that and some don't, and you might get legislation that says everybody should have that authority. Uh, if you don't get that, and that'll be quite controversial with industry, you'll, you might get some incentives like liability protection or some other protection that uh, would be appropriate uh, in uh, uh, as a, a, a kind of uh, lever to get uh, industry to adopt uh, the standards that come out of NIST. Uh, beyond that, the legislation I would describe as mostly filler. Uh, you know, they're going to reform FISMA, which is a, an internal U.S. government standard for security. Good idea. I'm not sure you really need legislation for that. They're going to probably put in a bunch of provisions about you know, authorizing new research programs. Until there's money, I don't think that matters much. And if there is money, we could probably find a way to fund the research we want anyway. So uh, the most important stuff is information sharing, and then we may see some new regulatory or other incentives to adopt the, the NIST standard. Well, as you have mentioned, the privacy groups have been very good at stalling the legislation, but how do you think the privacy right of citizens can be protected under any information sharing legislation? I mean, they, they do have a valid point, um, but so does the other side, well, of course. Well, yes and no. I mean, I, it, it may be that the government, you know, information sharing has, since 9-11 has been uh, the kind of thing that everybody is for. And so the government said, but the, the first way to uh, bumper sticker to sell this was, well, it's information sharing. Surely that's a good thing after 9-11 when information wasn't shared. Uh, but that probably overstates what's really intended here. The intent is when people find what I described is malware, IP addresses that are being used right now to steal information from us, uh, email addresses that are being 
used right now to send malware to us uh, in spear phishing campaigns. Those, uh, everybody should know about that. It's, 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 it's like being told, uh, you know, there's an accident on the next corner. Don't go that way. Uh, and the idea that, that uh, there's some threat to our civil liberties when a uh, private sector person leans out and says to a guy in a police car, there's an accident at the corner, don't go that way, I think is, is wrong. Uh, uh, and um, the likelihood that any of that is ever going to intrude into our privacy is pretty remote. Uh, I understand you can come up with theoretical scenarios, uh, uh, and I, I, I appreciate that it's a good idea to have some protections but the scenarios are theoretical compared to the very real. I mean, 20% of every single compromise is a government stealing information from months out of our systems. That's real, and that's here today, and that's not a hypothetical threat to our privacy. That's something we need to stop. Isn't that sort of indirectly happening today to a smaller scale, though, with some of the, um, the firewall technologies and the... And the, and the um security networks that some of these vendors are, are implementing where they, they, quote, talk to each other? Absolutely. Yeah. This is what's so infuriating about the campaign. This happens all the time, and we are totally dependent on it. Uh, we all depend on spam filters that talk to each other uh, and say, I just saw spam coming into System A. Right, Let's right. block it in System Z. Uh, what is a problem under the law is for those private systems to tell the government what those, uh, uh, what, what email is spam, what email is a spear phishing campaign, because some of those guys are electronic service providers and therefore are supposed to be waiting for a subpoena. This is a, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, it's the kind of legal uh, obstruction to doing the right thing that is infuriating uh, if you want government to work. And to have the privacy groups say, no, we actually want government to fail. We won't, we're going to stand in the way of getting rid of this thing because it's called a privacy protection and we don't like to see any privacy protection disappear. That's, uh, it, it, it's, it's really an unfortunate uh, position on their part. Mm-hmm. Well, you've also written about something you call the the attribution revolution. What can you tell our listeners what that is and what does it mean for cybersecurity? Yeah, if you don't mind the language, I've actually reduced this to Baker's Law, which is uh, <laughs> uh, our, our security sucks, but so does theirs. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm going to go on Wikipedia right now and look for that. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a good tweet to me. <laughs> well, and, and it, 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 we've, we've spent this whole time talking how, about how bad our security is, and it is very bad. Uh, the good news, the only good news in all of that is it turns out the guys who are attacking us are equally bad at securing their networks. Uh, they, they have the same problems. They reuse their passwords. They reuse their crypto. They reuse their infrastructure. Uh, they store their girlfriend's pictures on computers where they shouldn't leave them. They leave behind clues to their identity by reusing their uh, uh, instant messaging accounts. Uh, and we have begun, actually, um, uh, private entities more than the U.S. government, have begun to actually mine these mistakes to, to get into the command and control servers that uh, uh, particularly the Chinese have used against uh, uh, companies and individuals and uh, 
find the clues to the identity of the attackers. And we've begun to identify them by name. There's a wonderful picture on the internet where the Georgian government got so sick of a Russian hacker who was breaking into their systems that they took his malware, they flipped it around, they put it in a document that they knew he wouldn't be able to resist. And when he downloaded it, it phoned home to Georgia and said, uh, uh, here he is. And it took up his picture. Just as you can see the Concern dawning on his face that something is wrong with his computer, but before he's actually managed to disconnect it. Uh, so we really can find these guys, which opens the door to a whole bunch of sanctions, including traditional uh, prosecution of uh, uh, hackers, uh, but a whole bunch of other things, which we will have to do because these hackers are many of them beyond ordinary criminal prosecution uh, because they're protected formally or informally by other governments. But uh, the fact that we can begin to identify these guys, you know, there's there's only a handful that come along uh, uh, every year who are really good at this. And if we can start spotting them and then persuading them that uh, uh, they can do fine for a few years doing this, but they'll never work again uh, uh, if they choose this particular career path. Most of these guys are smart enough to earn a living in the uh, in, in the above-ground economy, uh, and we should be persuading them that that's where they want to start because they've seen friends and mentors have their careers destroyed because of their uh, uh, participation in hacking campaigns. That that would be my goal. I think we, if we can't deter people from doing this, we're stuck in a situation where we're just trying to defend our way out of this problem over and over again. And that's like solving the street crime problem by saying uh, pedestrians just need better body armor. <laughs> well, this is some really great stuff. But before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break with a few words from the Legal Talk Network. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just send us an email at advertising at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today we're talking to Stuart Baker, a lawyer and cybersecurity expert, about how law firms and businesses can defend themselves from cyber attacks. 
Stuart, what kind of penalties can we currently impose on hackers once we've identified them? Well, we're starting to do some of it already, and, and uh, the administration deserves some praise from this, for this. They, they started out very uh, antsy about naming and shaming the Chinese and the People's Liberation Army for their uh, hacker attacks, and they've gotten much more candid uh, uh, and much more open in saying this is intolerable and that uh, China is behind a lot of it, and that has made it possible for others to say the same thing. Uh, China will pay a price, a long-term price, uh, because it's not just us that is sub, uh, subject to these attacks. Uh, uh, they're doing the same thing to India, to Japan, to Korea, to Taiwan, uh, uh, to Vietnam, uh, uh, and nobody likes it. Uh, and that is costing them friends, and it's going to cost them allies. So that's one thing. Uh, uh, more granular uh, approaches. Uh, the one that I'm actually uh, uh, fond of is uh, uh, international economic sanctions for individuals. Uh, we can identify some of these individuals. And uh, one of the things that uh, the president has the power to do is to designate an international economic emergency uh, and then to impose sanctions on the people who are causing that emergency. Uh, uh, this is certainly an emergency, but to other emergencies that the president has uh, adopted, including included uh, a trade in blood diamonds from West Africa uh, or uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the use of kind of kleptocratic privatization in Belarus to uh, uh, create, um, uh, to, to stifle democracy there. And the government has named particular uh, um, uh, industrialists and government officials in Belarus. It's named people who traffic in conflict diamonds. And it has said no American, no bank, no institution may have anything to do with this uh, person. They've seized their assets. Uh, uh, they've made it very difficult for them to work in the West. Uh, we, we should certainly view what's happening to our computer networks as equally serious. And we ought to name some of the people that we can identify uh, uh, as people who should be sanctioned. And I predict other countries will follow suit um, and uh, that that will hurt them badly in the long run. The, the nice thing about that is um, the government has done that using classified information without necessarily disclosing the classified information. So uh, the intelligence agencies that know the most about our attackers can be helpful in that regard. And there are other things you could do. You could say, well, where did this guy go to school? There, there's clear indications that uh, Sichuan University uh, trained some of the most infamous hackers who've attacked the Dalai Lama's networks. Uh, they ought to be cooperating with investigations of those attacks. And if they don't, uh, I don't know why anybody would be giving them visas to let their professors or their students come to the West. Uh, um, uh, the same thing is true for the companies that hire these hackers after they finish their tours of duty as hackers and want to go straight. Uh, those are companies that need to do business in the West. And if they want to do business in the West, then they shouldn't be harboring criminals. And we should make them choose. So those are a whole bunch of things that we could be doing if we took this very seriously. Well, Stuart, you've, you've also written about active defense, the, the idea that private companies just shouldn't be limited to passively defending their own networks. Why is that necessary in your view? So uh, if you believe, as I do, that 
finding the guys who are attacking us is key because that that will lead to attribution and deterrence. Uh, then you you say, well, how do what resources do we have to go find them? And the answer is very few. Uh, the FBI doesn't have the technical resources, and the intelligence community doesn't work well with the private sector. Uh, uh, and cons- and all of them are pretty busy trying to figure out who's in their networks. Uh, uh, Whereas it it is my observation, and I have clients who are in this situation, uh, that when they discover that they've been compromised in this way, they will spend hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, to find out what's happening to get these guys off their network. And yet those people can come back uh, with another spear phishing campaign three weeks later and get back in. So they're spending a lot of money, but it's just uh, bailing the Titanic. Uh, and one of the things that they would be glad to do is further investigate the people who are attacking them in the hopes that some sanctions will be imposed. So we know there are a lot, of, a lot more resources in the private sector to do this than the government will probably ever have. Uh, and we ought to free up those resources to do something that might actually change the game. Obviously, you can't just let people start shooting back in cyberspace. Uh, uh, And indeed, I'm not sure I would really support the idea that uh, uh, private entities should be able to go out and do a complete investigation, break into computers uh, that they think are attacking them and report back on what they found. But it does seem to me that working with the government under some general guidelines so that the government is reasonably confident that nothing untoward is being done, that we're, we're talking about deputies and not vigilantes, uh, that strikes me as something that it's crazy not to do. We do it in the private sector and outside of uh, um, uh, cyber uh, security all the time. If you think the police are not doing a good job investigating a relative's murder, you're going to hire a private investigator. Nobody's going to call you a vigilante, and they're not going to call him a vigilante either. I think we should be doing more of that because we need the help. Well, I, I hate to bring us to the end here, but let me combine a couple of questions, and if you could give us an answer or two to three minutes, Stuart, that'd be great. Tell us how you differentiate between active defense and being a vigilante, and tell us whether you believe that active defense is, in fact, legal. So I, I can answer that pretty much the same way. Uh, The difference between vigilanteism and active defense is the government's role in overseeing, setting the rules, and setting the the terms of the investigation, which the government should do. Uh, uh, And the good news about this is while there are a lot of arguments about whether active defense would be legal in the abstract, and I've had those. Um, the one clear place where it's legal is if it, uh, the active defense is carried out uh, under law enforcement authorities. And this is not just the FBI. It could be the Secret Service. It could be state or local government authorities. As long as a government is using its authority, even if it's lending its authority to the private company that's under attack, uh, this is pretty clearly legal. And so if you're thinking about doing this, working with um, the government and getting them, whichever agency is most um, seized of, of jurisdiction in your particular case, getting them to say, yes, I'd love to be able to do that and saying, so, well, fine, we've got people who know how to do it. We've got the resources. You've got the authority. 
you know, uh, let's get some chocolate in your peanut butter. <laughs> well, a, f- a food analogy. I love that. <laughs> well, it's getting late in the afternoon. <laughs> I know, I know. As always, you are colorful. Uh, I love what you have to say. I'm sure to some of the listeners, it probably sounds like a very different world from anything that they imagined. Uh, so thank you for educating everybody, and thanks for joining us today, Stuart. Sharon, John, this was great. And that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and security services at SenseiENT.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.